Join me in prayer as we transition now. Father, you see, hear, and you care for all things. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your knowledge. You know the pain, the injustice, and the sorrow that our city is living in. Lord, we ask that your justice would roll down from the heavens to the earth like a river. May you shower your grace and forgiveness upon all who repent, and may you judge swiftly the unrepentant. We are told that you are near to the brokenhearted. We come to you this morning as broken brothers and sisters pleading to experience your nearness as we witness your will being done in our lives, in our church, in our city, and in our world as it is in heaven. And Lord God, for our church, as we plan our ways, may you direct our steps. Jesus, you are the head of the church. As realistically as our physical heads determine the movements of our body, you determine the movements in the body of Christ. And so we, we surrender our will to yours, trusting the outcomes that you grant are the best for your glory, for the good of your church and the advancement of your gospel. And all God's people said, amen. All right, well, we're jumping back into the book of James today. And so open up a Bible to James. We're going to be in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And before I read this, I just want to give you a disclaimer. This is a heavy passage, and it confronts each one of us sitting here today. America is among one of the wealthiest nations in the world, and regardless of how hard it may for you to how hard, regardless of how hard it may feel for you to pay your bills, if you are living in America and if you are employed, you are likely among the top percentages of the world's richest people. And James here comes with quite a, a confrontation to the rich. And so I promise that as we work to understand this passage, there's not just conviction and accusation. I think there's instruction of how people with money can live for God's glory. So that's where we're going this morning. I'm going to ask that you stand as I read James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. James, the brother of Jesus, writes to the church in the first century gathered in Jerusalem. He says, now come you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. God, may this word come alive to us today for your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, money is everything, right? It's not, but money certainly seems like everything. I remember when Brittany and I were doing premarital counseling as a couple, before we got married, our premarital counselor said, here's the big three in your marriage. Money, sex, and communication. Money, sex, and communication. If you get those three figured out, Lord willing, you will have a 
growingly healthy marriage. And it's certainly true. Money, sex, and communication in marriage. And then there's this book by Richard Foster called Money, Power, and Sex. And so he talks about how in the American culture and actually through the history of the world, all nations, money, sex, and power are these three forces that work to lead countries astray, to lead people astray. Now, they are all a good gift from God, right? Money, a good gift from God. Power, a good gift from God. Sex, a good gift from God. Communication, a good gift from God, a necessary component to doing life. But we all know the allure and the danger of money. Marriages break up over money. Families fall apart over money. I can't tell you how often I've heard about family fights and quarrels and then divisions over receiving parents' inheritance. Like, as, as a pastor, and, and I praise the Lord that I haven't had to deal with this a ton, a little bit, but not a ton, but in talking with other pastors, there's so, so often when somebody passes away, counseling with the family members becomes about who's going to get their parents' stuff. So families fall apart over money. Nations go to war over money. Money is everything for almost everyone. And James has some timely instruction for us today about money. He begins this section with this phrase, come now, which he used in James chapter 4, verse 13. James chapter 4, verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a place and, and live there and trade and make a profit. In James chapter 4, he is warning the proud planners. The people who say, I've got my plans, I've made my plans, I'm going to follow my plans, and therefore I'm going to be okay. He says, you don't know what tomorrow will hold. Your life is but a mist. Hold it with open hands. So James chapter 4, the end of that chapter, he's, he's warning us against proud planning and assurance in our plans. And then in James chapter 5, the first part of it here, he's warning against rich oppressors. So proud planners and rich oppressors, James warns us against. And here in 5 verses 1 through 6, he's really warning against the, the unrighteous rich. Now, living in America, I already said this, but living in America, most of us are considered rich by the world's standards, regardless of how hard it is for you to pay your basic bills. Some of you have no problem paying basic bills. Some of you have a really hard time as you work week to week, paycheck to paycheck, trying to pay off your bills. But regardless, living here in America, we are in a wealthy country with a lot of wealth. And so, as we get into this text, we need to figure out, who is James talking to? He says, come now, you rich. James is one of the pastors in the early church, in the church in Jerusalem, and he's instructing the church in this letter. So, is he writing to Christians, or is he writing to non-Christians who are in the assembly, who are in the gathering? He's, he's very condemning. He says, come now, you rich, who weep and howl the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and they will eat you like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last day. How could you talk to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that way? And so there's actually a couple different takes on this. Some people think that James is writing to non-believers who have come into the church gathering and he's calling them out, trying to lead towards their repentance. Some people think he's talking to Christians who haven't learned how to use their money in a godly manner. Uh, I think it's probably a combo of both. 
I, I think we shouldn't spend our time trying to figure out who exactly he's addressing in this passage, other than I think he's addressing the unrighteous rich. And in the unrighteous rich, there could be believers who are under-discipled, who are immature with their finances, and they need to be confronted, they need to be convicted. There could be non-believers who are using their money in ungodly ways, who need to be shown what godly living and money use is like. And so I don't know that we can exactly figure out who he's talking to, but we do know that he's giving a warning to the unrighteous rich. And I say unrighteous rich because as he says here, come now you rich. Well, that that Greek word for rich, it, it means wealthy. It just means an abundance of money, accumulation of stuff, which most of us fall into. So is he talking to us? Well, what we need to keep in mind is that throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, rich is often paired with the phrase unrighteous. Rich is often a, it's an imagery for an unrighteous person, an ungodly person, an unrepentant person. Again, so we don't know if it's directed to non-believers or to believers. I think it's a combo of both, but I just want to go through this passage now and say, what is James instructing us about our money? What do the unrighteous rich live like? And then we can assess our own money use and figure out if I'm to be a follower of Christ in the area of money, this is what I'm not to do. Because this is what James is confronting. And so that's what we're going to walk through. I think there's four practices in this passage that we see of the unrighteous rich. Those who have wealth and use it in an ungodly manner. And so let's walk through this. The first one, oh, my clicker went overboard there. The first one, I can't give, you, give away my second point. Eric, there we go, wonderful. The, fir- the first principle here, the, the unrighteous rich hoard and store up their riches. That's what James is getting at in verse 1 through 3 here. He's saying, come now, you rich, you who have wealth, you who have the accumulation of stuff. Again, that word rich is often paired with the unrighteous. He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. He's, he's really using hell imagery, the imagery of condemnation and separation from God. You have laid up treasure in your last days. What he's saying is that if you use your money for yourself, if you hoard and you store up your riches and you think about you and you alone, this is likely a sign that you don't understand the kingdom of God and you are storing up your riches which will be burned in the fire just like you. An old phrase that that I love and I've heard this said at many funerals from many godly older wiser people who are like, well, you can't bring your money with you. So give it away. Give it away. Figure out who to give it away, when to give it away, how to give it away. But when you come up and visit the casket, you see the body in there with a suit, and that's about it, or a dress, and that's about it. So James is warning this. Your wealth, your riches, they have no lasting, no eternal value. Be careful with them. Now, it's not wrong to have money or to make money. It has to do with what we do with our money, how we view our money. 
Money isn't meant to be kept and stored up for you. It's meant to be given away. And James isn't creating a new teaching here. I think he's drawing directly from his older brother, Jesus. Like so much of the book of James, I think he's drawing from the Sermon on the Mount. So flip over to Matthew chapter 6 and look at what Jesus has to say about money and see the parallel to what James has just said. Jesus, in teaching the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 19 through 26, he says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's no better way to tell where your heart is than to look at your checkbook, to look at your bank statements, to look at how you're spending your money. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. See, Jesus' teaching here is about who's your master, who controls you. Does money control you? Does wealth control you? Do possessions control you? Or are they merely a good gift that God has given you for you to use for his glory, the good of others, and the advancement of his gospel? The unrighteous person hoards and stores up their riches. Now, even as I say store up your riches, I I know some of you will say, you will run to, well, then Christians shouldn't have savings accounts. Christians shouldn't care about retirement. That's not at all what I'm saying. That's not at all what the scripture says. The scripture has a much more holistic view of money than that. The, the, the impulse here that James is getting at, that Jesus was getting at, is, is like accumulating money and stuff and storing it up and using it for your own pleasure, your own advancement, your own gain. Not wisely planning for the future. We'll talk a little bit about that as we go. But this first point here to just notice, how does an unrighteous person, or how do the unrighteously rich use their money? They hoard and they store up their riches for themselves. Second point, moving into verse 4, is that the righteous rich, rich take advantage of cheap labor, valuing profit over people. Look at what James says in verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborer, laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back, by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Simply stated, James is saying that we can't take advantage of employees. If you are an employer, you need to offer an equitable, fair wage to your employees. That's what righteous, godly people do. God's world ethic is for people to be paid a fair wage and to be cared for. The world's culture, the world's ethic, and the unrighteous rich, they will look for cheap labor so that their profit can be greater, so they can have a greater profit margin. Now, I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to go deep into this in the world systems, but, oh, church, we need to be careful as Christians living in America because this happens so often, where where we take advantage of cheap labor. I have example and example and example for my own life of working in jobs where I was paid cheap labor. And, you know, yes, those were entry-level jobs. I, you know, the goal wasn't to be there forever. But when I worked at Caribou, for a, I've worked at Caribou Coffee Shop different seasons in my life. And just the disparity between 
what the team members get paid, and then what the store manager gets paid, but then from what the store manager gets paid to the people at the corporate office and the executives get paid. And the store managers, I, I actually, I was this close to becoming a store manager at a caribou for a season of my life. I was offered a job there, and I was like, the amount of money that they're paying for the amount of work that you do, I, there were other reasons why I denied the job. But it was, it was horrific. Store managers are working 60 to 70 hours per week, and every time they're gone on vacation, they're getting phone calls from their employees who are making $7.50 to 8 bucks an hour. That's when I was there. Now it's up to 10 right? Minimum wage. It, it, and, and it's just horrific. And, and as you move up the chain, again, I'm not an economist, so I'm not, I'm not making any statements about capitalism and business structure and CEOs versus common laborers. But it was just horrific. To me, it felt unjust. To me, it felt unjust how, how much I and my coworkers were being paid. And then my boss, my store manager, how little she was being paid for the immense amount of work that she did. And all of the profit for the business came from the store. And this is just the culture that we live in. And so we need to be careful about taking advantage of cheap labor. The Christian ethic is to value People over profit, not to value profit over people. And many of our systems, many of our places of work, value profit over people. And so the people of God are to give a different picture of this. And so if you're a business owner, pay a fair wage to your employees and pay them on time. That's what James is getting at here. He says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud... You've kept it back by fraud. They're crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Those of you who have been oppressed in payment, God hears your cry. God sees that injustice, and he cares for you. Those of you who have been unjust with payment, God has a heart for the person who's been unjustly treated. And there's always room for repentance and coming back to God and saying, I, I screwed this up, forgive me. And there's love and forgiveness at, in the arms of the Father, but be careful. And again, James is drawing directly from the Old Testament. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, 24 verse 14 and 15 to see where James is drawing this from. It's on page 116 in the Pew Bible. Uh, 166 in the Pew Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 through 15. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your lands within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry out against you and you be guilty of sin. This is an Old Testament ethic that comes through all of God's word that the poor are to be honored and to be paid. That people with money, that rich business owners or business owners in general, we ought not to take advantage of our employees, but we put people over profit. This may mean that executives lower their salary a bit so that those people working on the ground floor can have a little bit higher salary. It's just, we have to think this through. 
for ourselves as Christians and, and know that cheap labor isn't necessarily a win. Cheap labor might be a sin. In many of our businesses and many of our cultural conversations, cheap labor is a win, right? The cheaper I can get this produced, the cheaper I can get this manufactured, the cheaper that I can get somebody to do this task, the larger my profit. Well, this passage is actually warning us, the scripture is warning us to be careful for that because cheap labor is not necessarily a win. It might be a sin. In his book, Money, Sex, and Power, Richard Foster makes the point that all business endeavors and everything that relate to making and spending money has to do with bringing forth the goods and the services of the earth either to, a, to bless or oppress mankind. So business, industry, creation, all of this has to do with bringing forth the goods and the services of the earth. God has called mankind to have dominion over the earth, to rule the earth, and to build and to procreate and to, to create industry and business and infrastructure. And all of what we do has to do with bringing this forth either to bless or to oppress people. And so the question do we use our business endeavors, our money, our efforts to bless people? Or have we turned a blind eye to the oppression of people so that we can gain a profit? James has a stern warning against financial oppression related to equitable and timely pay. The call is for Christians to simply be equitable and timely as we consider this. What is equitable? What is timely? That's for different conversation and larger minds to figure out. Our instruction as God's people is to be prayerful and thoughtful about these things. The third characteristic of the unrighteous rich is that they spend God's money on personal luxury. Look at verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Not very hopeful. Welcome to church. Oh, the last latte that you bought at Caribou for five bucks. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fed, or the pour-over at the fancier coffee shop for seven bucks. Luxurious. What is James getting at here? Like, should we feel guilty about all of these expenses? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know, right? He is calling Christians to spend modestly. And throughout Scripture, Christians are called to save wisely and to give generously. So those two points aren't in this text. This text is, is saying that the unrighteously rich, they spend frivolously, they spend on luxuries. And so by comparison, the righteous rich or the godly who use wealth, they would spend modestly. And let me tie to that just in the overall scope of Scripture. Christians, the followers of Jesus, are called to spend modestly, to save wisely, and to give generously. Those are three biblical principles related to our money. Spend modestly, save wisely, give generously. But here James is dealing with the spending modestly piece. Again, Richard Foster in his book Money, Sex, and Power says, Our refusal to merchandise in the frivolous is directly connected to the high value we place upon human life. It is wrong to use the world's resources to fritter them away on trivialities when human beings need to be fed, clothed, and educated. We value people more than ostentatious clothes and gaudy homes. So long as the gospel needs to be preached, so long as children need to be fed, 
Christians cannot afford to have any part with the vanity fairs of the world. What a great point. Now, we need to be careful with this because what is vanity? What is luxury? There's some relativity to that question. What may seem luxurious to you may not be luxurious for another person. There's different income levels. There's different tax brackets. God has entrusted each of us with different areas of wealth and possession. And so somebody may have a larger house, a nicer car, more extravagant vacations, but they may be giving more money away to the gospel and they may be spending less money on their luxuries than somebody who has a smaller house, a smaller car, less luxurious vacations, but they're spending proportionately more on it and giving less away. So we just, we have to be careful with this point. That we don't start judging people based off of what we see and assume is luxurious spending. Now, in Christian community, we get to know that, right? That's, that's why church isn't just an event that we gather on a Sunday morning, but we need to be in each other's lives. I, as your pastor, need to be in people's lives and close enough that people are like, man, it seems like your, uh, your old car has turned into a BMW every two years, a new BMW every two years. What's going on with that, Pastor? Hey, you just bought a private jet? Hmm, I don't have a private jet or a BMW. But I do have a pastor friend who has a BMW. And you should, just the anxiety that he had about buying it, it, it was the same price as a Toyota Camry. And we were both like, I mean, he asked people, like, should I get this? I'm a pastor. And we're like, that's an amazing deal, and that's a sweet car. You could get your Toyota Camry for the same mileage, same price, just so that people don't judge your decision, but just do it. And so we have to be careful, right? We don't know. Was that a gift? Does this, does this person make so much money and they spend so little, but the little bit that they spend allows them these luxurious vacations? Meanwhile, my weekend away is, is actually me stretching it. So be very, very careful with this point, church. Not to get judgmental of how other people use their wealth, but use this as a self reflection as a as a time and a point to just assess for yourselves am i spending modestly based off of my income am i saving wisely based off my income and my long-term goals with with passing on my wealth to my family to my churches to my kids to my grandkids to not be a burden when i get older that my kids will have to pay for everything for me these are questions that have to be asked but again, let's be careful with this point. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Let's be careful not to skip over that and say, I'm not guilty of luxurious spending, right? We should sit with that. God, are you trying to convict me? Are there areas that, that I should clamp down? Are there areas that I should stop spending on things that I don't need so that I can give money away? Like Richard Foster says here, Chris, Christians cannot afford to have any part in van, the vanity fairs of this world as long as the gospel needs to be preached and there's children who need to be fed and educated. Like, we should wrestle with that. Should I do this vacation when there is a starving kid in my neighborhood? Wrestle with it. Pray it through. Let me give you a few simple self-assessment questions that you can ask yourself related to your spending, to your saving, and to your giving. The first one, when it comes to spending, rather than asking, can I afford it, I think we ought to be asking, is God calling me to get it? Can I afford it is the wrong question. 
Maybe you can, but that doesn't mean you should. If we're constantly asking the question, God, what do you want? God, is wh- what is your will? God, how am I to use my money? How am I to use my time? How am I to use my assets? God, are you calling me? God may actually call you to buy a bigger house. Right? The world's guilt and church's judgment may make you feel like I need to keep my house smaller, more modest, but God may say, no, I want you to buy a larger home. I've given you more resources, and I want you to buy a space that people can come, and it can be a respite, and God may do that. And so the question isn't just, can I afford it? It's, God, do you want me to afford this? Do you want me to buy this? Do you want me to spend my money in this way? Is it right for me to go on this vacation? Yes or no? Why, why not? Welcome to the Christian life. It's messy. Constant tension. Constant surrender. Constant seeking someone else to make your decisions for you. But how glorious it is when we're set free. Amen? And so ask yourself that question. God, are you calling me to get it versus can I afford it? When it comes to saving, you can ask yourself, am I using wisdom or trying to control an outcome? When I think about saving my money for retirement or a future purchase or, or for whatever it may be, am I using wisdom or am I trying to control the future to control an outcome? Good luck with that. You have no ability to control the future which may make it all the more wise for you to save some money because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. And then lastly, when it comes to giving, just know that money, money is made to be taken and traded and manipulated in the world. And so one of the best things that we can do as Jesus followers who live with a different ethic than the world is to give our money away. Isn't that amazing when you give your money or your time or your effort away and people just so want to pay you back? Right? We live in this system where we're hardwired for trade and for repaying. Like you go and you help somebody move and they just feel like they have to provide dinner for you and you feel, you, you know, we're so trained that we're like, well, where's the food? I came and helped you move and you didn't even get me dinner. One of the best things that we can do is to give. Give our money. Give our time. And church, I just want to encourage you with this for a moment as we're in this heavy-hitting text about the unrighteous rich. I get the sense that our church is incredibly generous. That, that you guys are asking these questions. That, that you are saying, God, do you want me to buy this? Do you want me to buy that? Do you want me to sell this? Do you want me to sell that? How can I best honor you with my spending? We have some people with large homes and nice cars. And I genuinely think those people are asking God, is this where I should live? Is this how I should live? We have some people with some smaller homes and some junkier cars. And I honestly think those people are saying, God, is this right? Am am I following you? Am I being honest with my money? And so I just want to encourage you, church, to keep running in this direction. Keep surrendering your finances to God. And, and assessing and asking yourself, am I spending God's money on my personal luxury? And am I, am I out of balance? Is this text here in James, and are we looking at it this morning for you to convict me, God? That I would repent and change ways on how I use my money? Or that I would keep running in the right direction? 
keep practicing these same principles that I've already learned and have been applying. And then lastly, the fourth principle here is that the righteous rich condemn the poor. Verse 6, he says, you have condemned. The Greek word here means to, to stand in judgment or to make accusation against. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And so just simply stated, the, the unrighteous rich, they, they, they devalue people because of their economic status or contribution. And oh, how rampant this is in our world. And how easy it is for the human heart to start passing judgment by physical appearance or, or economic contribution, right? And so as Jesus followers, as we live in this world that is marked by a lot of unrighteous rich, we just need to be careful not to condemn the poor, not to pass judgment on the poor, not to say, well, they just didn't work hard enough. They're just lazy they just have bad work ethics. If they, if they just did what my parents did and pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, they would have it better off. No, James is saying the righteous rich condemn people in poverty, but throughout the scriptures we see Jesus honoring the poor, loving the poor, saying that the brokenhearted are near to the heart of God, that the, the poor in spirit, and that has to do with more than just finances, Right? But the poor, the broken, the outcast, the lonely, these are the people that Jesus spent his time with. While also spending his time with rich people and wealthy people. One of the things that I love about the early church and that I love about our church is that it's filled with people all over the economic scale. And in Jesus' early church, it, he calls Levi or Matthew the tax collector to come and follow him and, and it says that he left everything. And then in Luke's recording of that, the very next scene, they're at Matthew's house having a feast. He was a tax collector who had a ton of money from unrighteous living, from poor business practice. And he leaves everything to follow Jesus, but apparently leaving everything didn't mean selling everything and, and becoming poor himself. It meant having Jesus into his house with other sinners and tax collectors and having a feast likely catered by a servant. And they're learning a new way of life together. And so church family, simply be careful about judgments and accusations and assumptions about people who are poor. And if you are poor, if you feel poor, if you're struggling to make ends meet, I hope and pray that you find a safe family here who can help carry your burden. Let's just close out this morning. I want to look at Matthew 19, 16 through 30 as we close out and as we go to communion. You know that every week at Park Community Church, we want to focus on Jesus. We don't gather to get better with our money or to get more money. We gather to be more in line with living life in the way of Jesus. And so let's close out with this parable today as we turn to communion and remembering the forgiveness that there is in Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, These I have kept 
What do I still lack? That's a really good guy. Wow, he's done a lot. And, and remember, this is after Jesus has already said that hatred is the same as murder, that lust is the same as adultery, that coveting is the same as stealing. He kept all these good, upstanding citizen. The young man said, I have kept all these. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, we're going to finish out this text, but just know that the call isn't for every person to sell everything and follow Jesus. Jesus was getting at this young man's heart and his treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This young man was not willing to give up his finances to follow Jesus. Be willing to give up your finances to follow Jesus, and it's more likely you'll keep them. However, you can't manipulate God like that, right? You, you tracking with me? Sometimes we do that, right? God, I'm not going to pastor in Hawaii. I'm not going to pastor in Hawaii. I think he's going to send me there. I don't actually want to go to Hawaii, but, Right? <laughs> And so God knows the heart, and he, and he gets at the heart. Verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then shall be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Grab your communion cup and just hold it as I reread those two verses. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. See, Jesus lived a perfect life died a sacrificial death, overcame sin and death in the grave to make it possible that you and I, regardless of our history and our relationship with money, could be saved. Amen? So we gather to worship Jesus. When you feel led and ready during this next set of music, take communion and remember that Jesus has made it possible for you to be saved. And then respond as Jesus finishes up here. Verse 27, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then shall we have? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, even when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will have eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this promise that we have this glorious, prosperous future to come. And Lord, so may we willingly embrace whatever station of life you have us in now for your glory, for the good of those that we do life with in the advancement of your gospel. God, we thank you for making it possible for us to be saved through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And now may we be people who hold all things with open hands. In your name we pray, amen.